America where money grows on trees and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wearing custom, wear masks, and ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America, and we married the next year. I also assumed, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then. After years of unresolved marriage problems and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home. After his first year in dental school, he made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave without any hesitation. Christopher picked up his bags and laughed. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come in with a knife. You would have heard less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my robe as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all with only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister. I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if 
I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very happy. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. <laughs> but I realized that her transformation was not an, only a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God also work on me. So I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and his word. It was while studying the word in my church and in BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet, and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs, and to be clear, not all gay men do drugs. Some do, some don't. I'm just telling my story, not everyone else's story, but I want to remind us that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs like my classmates. I was broke, so I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So. My parents flew from Chicago, where we were originally from, to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My father was a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean... It is not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support what 
ever decision the school made. My mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than their children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than a career. Beyond the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of their career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we often force our kids to do the same. Our parents putting more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, or all good things. Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon our children following Jesus? It's no wonder why many kids grow up in church, go off to college, and they leave their faith behind because maybe they actually were never worshiping God at home in the first place. Nothing is more important than following Christ. But let's be honest, I was not very happy about my mom's decision because she wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took her for the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words scripture and hymns at the bottom of each card i sign love you forever mom but little did i know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash my wife and i knew the only way if we want to see our son we have to fly from chicago to atlanta so we did but on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allowed us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left it on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible, threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. <laughs> Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. She worked literally spent hours inside her prayer closet on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. 
If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher. But the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with the bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. Legal here in Cali, right? With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was... I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you moms out there, be aware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But mom's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no braiding words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul doesn't say that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness 
that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator, a counting machine. And she tore off a little piece of the, the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. <coughs> Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block, and if I could just be totally blunt with you, I was doing everything that I could to stay to myself. Think about it. I was not going to mingle with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. <laughs> and I passed by this garbage can. And for those of you that's never been to jail before, they don't take the trash out every day. It was a mound of trash. Flies were circling around it. It reeked. I looked at this and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad had two doctorates. I was just three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. Something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I just thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion. And it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. The nurse shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, so she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. 
ever since Christopher told us he was gay. I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison. The news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn on my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumble up the step and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees. A steam tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else, and it read... If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. At the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he may even still have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. 
My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that. At that moment, I got down to my knees, said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. It was then that God began convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But then a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, that seemed to condemn this core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I thought, I need to ask someone. I need to talk to someone, like the chaplain. So I went to the chaplain. I, you know, I, Remember, I'm a brand new Christian. I know very, very little about the Bible. And so I needed to ask someone who's studied the Bible, who's gone to cemetery, seminary, the chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he went to his bookshelf and he got a book and he said, here, this book explains that view. So think about it. With much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I thought, let's just set aside these six passages. Not that we can, but just for argument's sake, let's just set them aside. And I just, I want to read the rest of the Bible to see if there's anywhere that might be positive toward a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived, or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am, and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true. But as sinners, don't we want to sometimes add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, God says, be holy, for I am holy. 
You know, before I had become a Christian, I was under the impression to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. What does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I was under the impression that the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he still would need to flee temptation and resist sin. So heterosexuality, it's the right direction. It's not the right goal. Because think about this. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. They're actually both the wrong secular Freudian categories. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Thus, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations. God doesn't say, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted again. No, Jesus himself was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them to collect to my parents, told them I think God's calling me calling me to ministry, and then I asked him to mail me an, a- an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore them again, filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody. These had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. So amazingly, I was accepted. (laughs) I was released from prison July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis 2007, and then received my doctorate in ministry in 2014. And then back in 2000, praise the Lord, it really is a miracle. Then back in 2011, I had the immense privilege of co-authoring a book with mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote, she wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. But the best part is how God and his power and his grace brought us all back together. This book now is in 130,000 copies in print. It's in eight different languages, including Spanish, Korean, Chinese, etc. And there's this study guide in the back that many people are using at home with their kids from like nine years old on up. But it's also being used as a, in, by Christian schools as a textbook. Who would have thought that our testimony is now being used as a textbook? But it makes sense. Our kids are being flooded inundated with resources on sexuality, all from a non-Christian worldview, starting in pre-K. 
if your kids are in daycare, I can, if, or not Christian, but even some, I don't know, I mean, some Christian schools, I, I won't go there. But even, I mean, if they are not in Christian daycare or a public school, it's guaranteed, beginning in pre-K. The kids' books nowadays, I would encourage you parents, do not buy any of the newer kids' books out there. Because there's almost in every one a, either a subtle or explicit, even in the drawings of gay couples, of transgender. Go back to like Clifford and Curious George. Stick to those. Because I, my mom, my parents and I, we strongly believe that the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Yeah. Amen? It doesn't belong in the hands of Hollywood. It also doesn't belong in the hands of, what, isn't it kind of next door or close by? Disney. Disney, actually, I mean, we're, we're shocked at what's going on. I, I was not, Disney hasn't been safe for the past 10 years. Think about Frozen, let it go. Listen to that again. The first time I heard that on YouTube, I, I thought, this is a gay anthem. Basically, her storyline is she's coming out. That's essentially her storyline. She had to keep it hidden. It's ashamed. Think about the storyline. She's not even dating anyone. Think about it. Everyone's even saying that she's lesbian because I bet you they wrote that specifically, keeping that in mind. Kids love it, everyone's singing it. That is a gay coming out anthem. Disney just won't admit it. Who holds the responsibility to teach our kids about sex and sexuality? Before you answer that, I, let's, if you have your Bibles, open up. What's, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I mean, I, I, I'm sure I'm not saying anything. You guys, this is Calvary Chapel. You guys go through expository preaching. You know the Bible well. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy 6, right? Now, this was written to Israel, but because Jesus reiterates it, we know now it's also for the church. Deuteronomy 6. This is Deuteronomy 6, verse, verse, uh, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And as people who go to Calvary Chapel, we know that whenever we read the Bible and interpret the Bible, we need to read it in context. So reading this in context, we will see that this greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is actually a sandwich. The middle of the meat is this, the greatest commandment. But you know what's the bread? You know what's around it? It is, it is putting very strongly that this context of the greatest commandment is in the context of home discipleship. Look at this. Deuteronomy 6. It says, verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God... You and your son, your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and commandments, right? So that's, it's not just like you, but it's our children. And then we have verse, and then it goes on, and then you should love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then right after that, you know what it says? And these words I command you shall be on your heart. Like, not just mind, but it's like, it's our, it's, and actually the word heart is, it's not just like the organ, but it's actually views like we, our soul, it's, it's everything. And then, get this, you shall teach them diligently, not lazily, not half-heartedly, diligently. Teach them what? To your children. Are we going to keep this to ourselves, the ways of the Lord? Loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teach them to their children. And you, when, when should we do it? And shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down. Sit, walk, lie down. In other words, everything. 
Everything you do, whether you are eating dinner, whether you're brushing your teeth, whether you're driving your kids to work, or I mean, or school, or whether you're driving them to piano lesson or driving them, I mean, isn't that, I mean, parents, you're just basically taxis for your kids, right? Driving them here, driving them there, driving them there, driving them there. What are you supposed to do on the way? Teaching them the ways of the Lord. Can I get an amen? amen. So, so who, I'm kind of setting this up and giving you the answer. Who holds the main responsibility to disciple and educate our kids on the ways of the Lord, especially on biblical sexuality? Who holds that responsibility? Parents. But it's actually more than that. Because it says, sons and to your sons' sons. So it's not just parents. Because parents, you need help. In 2023, it's all hands on deck. Parents, y'all need help. And who has God ordained to help? Grandparents. Are there any grandparents in this room by chance? I see those hands. Grandma, grandpa, any great-grandparents in here? You know why I'm adding you to the list? Y'all have too much time on your hands. No, I don't. Here's the real reason. Maybe right now, the way our kids are, let me think back when you were younger. Maybe right now, grandpa, grandma, you have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. I mean, how much do teens listen to their kids now? I mean, to their parents. You might have more of that listening ear are we doing anything about that? Are we using that advantage? Or are we just letting it slip by? Are we using it, Grandpa? Are we using it, Great Grandma, to throw a lifeline to our kids that are drowning in a tsunami of lies? We're going to be held accountable, grandparents. Are we doing anything? Because silence is no longer an option. I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma to this rural church. And after we finished, this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table. And she, she had her finger out even. She's like, I need ten books. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, she just needs one. I need ten books. She said, one for myself Nine for every, one, sing, every single one of my grandchildren. She said, I ain't taking no chances. I'm going to mail each one of them a book. And then I, as a grandmother, I'm going to read it with them. I'm going to use that discussion guide in the back. And I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandmother who's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not just shrug it off to the world any longer, but to take it back. Anyone want to take it back from the world? Let's see those hands. Who wants to take it back? Fathers, grandfathers, it's time we take it back. But I can, I can kind of see it in your eyes. I'm like, yeah, I think so, but I'm afraid. I'm scared. And that's okay. We should be doing everything with fear and trembling, right? Before the Lord. Where do you start? Well, that's why I wrote my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. I introduced this concept of holy sexuality in my first book with my mom, um, and it was only, it was really short, just about six pages. I thought, I need to flesh this out. And so that's why I wrote this newest book. Because we need to dig deeper. Sometimes our messages to our kids is this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. That's important to teach our kids. But we can't stop there. We cannot build a Christian life just on God's no. What is God's yes? Well, it's quite simply chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. So I wrote this newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Design, Relationship, Shaped by God's Grand Story, for adults, college students, young adults, to help us to have a deeper understanding of biblical sexuality. Not, as, not just what is God's no, but what is God's yes. And... So, but then, you know, so this book was named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. But in the years that this has been out, 
my parents and I have realized that we desperately need something for teens. So in the past three years, I've been working. Uh, my parents, they've, they've actually, uh, my, they've given and funded this whole program, which is well into six figures, this program. We have 32 animators, illustrators, uh, sound engineers uh, working on this project, and it's going to be released in a month. And we're calling it the Holy Sexuality Project. You can put up the QR code. Now, initially, we were going to call it uh, the teen curriculum, but I thought, that's going to, curriculum, that word scares away teens. So we're dropping that word curriculum. I mean, that actually scares away some parents, too. So we're dropping that term curriculum, and we're just calling it the Holy Sexuality Project. It's a 12-lesson lesson video series, 36 videos, 250 minutes of content. Everyone, if you, you can feel free to whip out your phone, scan this QR code, put in your email address and your name, because in the next week or two, actually, we're going to be giving everyone more information on how to get this. And to be honest, this video series would normally cost $250 to $300 uh, for you know, a two-year license. We're charging $20. Essentially, I mean, it's not even covering the cost because my parents and I and, and a few other donors are so passionate about giving a resource to parents. The answer is not more programs. It's good that we teach our kids here in church and even in youth group biblical sexuality, but that should not be the primary place. It should be secondary. It should be supplemental. Who holds that main responsibility? Parents. But if you see, the majority of resources out there aren't specifically for parents. We're not going to make that mistake. We never want to steal your job away from you, parents and grandparents. So essentially, this helps you. What we want, actually, we're encouraging churches to get parents together over leadership, like a small group leader or a pastor that's going to guide these parents through this curriculum. They're pretending like they're going through it with their kids, but they're doing it together so it's kind of safe. They feel comfortable. Then they're really kind of, they know exactly what's, what's through these videos. They're going to go through the, the, the questions because basically each of these 12 lessons have three videos, a teaching video of 10 minutes, another teaching video of 10 minutes, and then a wrap-up video of two or three minutes. And in between and after our discussion questions. So you'll be very familiar with it, parents and grandparents, and then you can go to your teens and then go through it with them. Because the goal is to empower teens to understand, embrace, and celebrate biblical sexuality, but the, I have an ulterior motive, and that is to set you up to do the job that God has ordained you to do so that after these 12 lessons are done, you are going to continue these conversations at home. It's going to set you up for not only at home afterward, but after that as well. Not just for high school, but during college years when, as we know, that's often when the battle really begins. But if you already have this context of home discipleship and home discussions, I believe that is the answer because silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, for the past two decades, have been traveling around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. And if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because back when I was living in Chicago, I taught for 12 years at Moody Bible Institute in the, in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. I know many of you might not have heard a story like mine before. A guy who used to identify as gay and now no longer does. And that certainly is an important aspect of my testimony. But actually, that's not how I would best summarize it. This is how I would summarize it. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was lost, and now I'm found. 
I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and his name is Jesus. That's my testimony. I know many of you may have noticed this empty stool. Nine months ago, my dear father suddenly went home to be with the Lord. He was actually very, very, very active. He traveled with me 40 to 50 times a year. I regularly travel 67 times a year. I have a tra policy. I don't travel alone. So my mom always travels with me. But he will travel the whole family, all of us, three of us, 40 to 50 times a year. And he would preach the gospel more than men half his age. When I'm 82, I want to be like dad. On June 30th, we had just come home from the Bay Area, ministering. And then on July 1st, my mom and dad were running errands. We're from San Diego, and they were running errands, and they were in the parking lot, and my dad fell and hit his head really hard on the pavement. And brought him to the emergency room, and the internal bleeding, they couldn't stop it. So by the time I got there, my dad was not clear, and within 12 hours, he was in a coma. The doctor told me, he's like, it's, there's really not much hope. And I told the doctor, no. Mom and I believe in hope, and we believe in miracles. Anyone here by chance believe in miracles? So we prayed. We got over 100 people around the world praying for Dad. And in 48 hours, that miracle came when my dad was fully healed before his Savior. As we were about to leave before, just on, before, at the bedside, just before the shell of his body, my mom looked at me and said very adamantly, we're going to tell everyone that Dr. Leon Yuan is not dead. He is now more alive than he ever was before. My dear father spent all of his latter years telling people about Jesus. He gave all. He gave much. He paid for this whole project, and my parents did, and he would want, if he was here today with us, he would want everyone in this room, young, old, it doesn't matter whether you're 9 or 99, he would want every one of you to know Jesus. Do you know going to church does not save you? You know, having a godly mom or dad or, or spouse that drags you to church every Sunday does not save you. Reading the Bible every single day does not save you. But believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth, and you will have eternal life. So the question for you this morning, listen up, that nothing actually really matters. The question for you this morning is, do you know Jesus? Do you have eternal life? Because if not, today's the day. Today's the day. Let's pray. And before we pray, I, I don't want to let this moment slip by. If you've been coming to church or maybe someone just brought you, there's no mistake that you're here this morning, right now, or even watching. If you don't know Jesus or you're not even sure, 
I want you to, after this, speak to a pastor, an elder, and we want to begin this journey with you. But I, I want you to say this prayer, and I want to be clear, this prayer does not save you. Jesus does. But this prayer is just testifying to God what you believe, and it's the beginning of this daily conversation with God. So just, just where you're at, you don't even have to say it aloud, you can, but say it in your heart, in your mind, say this, God, you created me in your image, but I rebelled, I sinned, I went my own way, and I deserve the consequence of that. But Jesus, you sent your son who entered into our messed up world, lived a perfect life, and then he went to the cross willingly, and he died on the cross for my sins. And on the third day, you rose him from the grave. And today, I confess with my mouth, I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. By grace, through faith in Christ, I too know that I will rise with him on that day. I believe. For the rest of us who believe, know Jesus, God, I pray that you would, you would encourage us and fill us by your Holy Spirit to live fully for you the rest of our days, that we would love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would no longer shrug off our responsibility to the world to do our job to disciple our kids on biblical sexuality. Lord, we love you, but help us, God, to love you 